HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. I'm Mike Calameco from Food Talk. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, December 3rd. This is the 45th episode of the series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a notable New York City restaurant critic, and I will introduce him in a moment. But first, as I do on every show, I will start with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. Today's tip is to be thankful and giving. Yes, we're coming off one of my favorite holidays, Thanksgiving, so that's what's on my mind, and I think it's important. Oftentimes we get wrapped up in our work and stress and forget to stop and smell the roses. So let's all try to remember what we are grateful for and savor it. And the other part of Thanksgiving is the giving. Support charities, causes, and nonprofits that you believe in. One such example is Heritage Radio Network. We are a nonprofit, and we are currently having our biannual fundraising drive. If you like what you hear here and on all of our programs, we hope you will become a member and support us. Go to heritageradionetwork.org for more information. So have gratitude and give back. You can make a difference. That's my tip today. Now, I'm really excited about my guest. It is Steve Cuso, restaurant critic, real estate columnist, and op-ed contributor at the New York Post, a daily newspaper primarily distributed in New York City. A lifetime resident of New York, Steve spent his career at the Post, working his way up from entry-level copy boy to various jobs including copy editor in the newsroom, entertainment editor, and executive editor. So welcome, Steve. Thank you, Sherry. Great to be here. Well, it's great to have you, and I am so curious about how 
you got started at the post and why the post? Because I had a lot of jobs at different places in my career, and I'm amazed you've been with the post all this time. I'm the strangest man in journalism <laughs> and in the newspaper industry. People move around like moths. And I've been at the post for, it's going on 42 years. Will be if, if I make it uh, through the next two weeks, it'll be 42 years. That's incredible. And I, I, started, I started as a copy kid, copy boy, and sharpening pencils. So if that qualifies as an introduction to journalism, that's how I, that was my introduction to journalism. So I, I'm assuming it's a great place to work or else you would have moved somewhere at some point. Well, I've had a fabulous career that has spanned, you know, the Post has a very colorful history, which goes back to 1801. And it's been <laughs> particularly colorful over the last 42 years when uh, the paper, we had uh, three different owners. Uh, briefly, we had two uh, crazy maniacs briefly in charge of the paper in early 1993, many different editors, and I've had many, many different roles. So it's as if I've uh, switched careers about 14 times without having to change jobs. Right. So if I read that you started as the restaurant critic in 1998, is that That's correct? That's right, yeah. Did you replace someone, or was that no, a new position? No, it, it, was, it, was it was a new position. It occurred entirely uh, miraculously because it was a role that I had never asked for. And when they asked me to do it, uh, I was completely disbelieving for about um, a month. Even after I began writing and I realized that it was really happening, I couldn't believe it because obviously it's a dream, uh, it's a dream role. But before that, um, we, the Post, to my knowledge, never had a serious restaurant critic, at least not since the 1940s. And in much more recent times, we had all sorts of weird, uh, phony ad support columns masquerading as actual restaurant uh, editorial reviews. Uh, there was a guy named Marty Burden, very nice fellow, uh, no longer with us. If you walk, he, he probably filed his last piece around 1989. And if you walk through Chinatown, you might still come across one, you know, totally yellow and green in color hanging in a window. Okay. Well, look for it. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> so what was that like starting as the restaurant critic in this new position? And you didn't, did you, I mean, do you, do you love food? Did you have an interest in restaurants? Oh, yeah, I, I love food. I love restaurants. And that was one of the reasons that I was, I was asked to take on this uh, uh, role. And um, the, uh, when you start doing something new, and, and in, a, in a column so visible that's widely read, um, you know, I admit to having a certain stage fright at, at first, wondering, uh, how, how am I really going to do this? I wasn't friendly with any other established critics, although I knew, if, I, I knew Gail slightly, but I wasn't really friendly with anyone in, in the sense that I could have learned from them. And I basically had no idea how to go about doing it. So you just plunge in. I worked uh, in a strictly anonymous fashion for about six years, and I, I abandoned that practice only because uh, of being anonymous, only because uh, it, it had become ridiculous because I was recognized in so many places that there seemed no point going in with the phony credit card names and reservations and fake names and all that. Um, since they knew who I was almost everywhere, it was just sort of embarrassing and pointless. 
So now, when you make a reservation, do you do it under your name? Almost always. There are exceptions, ah. but almost always. I sometimes do it on uh, using Open Table, like anyone else. And the uh, uh, you know, if if your next question might well be, um, how does that change things? Um, obviously, it's a different way of reviewing, but uh, you'd be astonished uh, how little difference it makes. In most cases, not every case, but in most cases, they can't change the food. They can give you a better table. Um, just as often, um, I'm offered, and I don't know why this is, what I regard as uh, the worst table in the house. It may be because they misunderstand what I regard as a good table and not a good table. Um, and the service, very often, uh, you can receive the same uh, kind of sloppy service that most frequent diners experience in New York. And you can also, ex I, I also sometimes am treated, if that's the right word, to uh, over-service, where at, throughout the meal I'm fending off, you know, 20 different people coming over, sweeping away crumbs, uh, you know, is everything, is everything tasting wonderful and all this kind of stuff to the point that I have to shoo them away or, or, or we have no privacy. What happens if they send out extra dishes? Can you accept yes, dishes? I, yeah, I do. I, I don't uh, accept any comps. Um, the, uh, we've never worked that way. And um, the, the Post, like other serious newspapers with restaurant critics, um, pays for all of our meals. However, um, I'm, if, if a chef or a kitchen sends out an extra dish, um, that's fine. And I, you know, I almost never say no to it unless it's a complete bank breaker like uh, you know, white truffles in season, uh, which may be you know, a $200 dish. And which most people aren't going to uh, aren't going to uh, order in any case, right? Well, that's interesting. So, um, I j what happens um, now when you're recognized? And do you? I mean, do you? You 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 know they're gonna they they know who you are. So, sorry, I lost my train of talk. Let's talk about your big your biggest restaurant pet peeve. Like, what happens in a restaurant besides that they recognize you and they're not leaving you alone? What would happen? Uh, oh, my, what, what? my biggest peeves in restaurants in New York are not necessarily in order. Overcooked chicken, um, share plates, uh, you know, the small plate, uh, large plate uh, racket, which is uh, essentially a way of uh, upselling you. Uh, general upselling on the part of the floor staff who are trained to do that. And they can earn more money and more brownie points with their bosses um, if they if their tables spend more, and that's kept you know religious track of by management, and um, and the practice of we do not seat incomplete parties. Oh, I hate that one. <laughs> that that might no that one drives me crazy. Uh, I don't I don't get it. I mean I do, but I don't. You know, like just they're lazy. I get it. And there are some cases, look, there are cases of abuse by customers. Um, we're all familiar with that. Um, people take advantage of restaurants. Even so, most of the time where I'm told, well, you know, the rest of your party is in here. Would you like to wait at the bar? That kind of thing is, in my view, it's nothing more than lazy front of the house managers and hosts and hostesses. They just don't want to bother making the extra trek to the table. Right. So how many times do you go to a restaurant to review it? It varies it, typically between one and four. 
And so uh, the restaurant I, I'm reviewing this week, uh, Capo Massa, I'll have been there four times. Um, in rare cases, uh, tip, three is a more typical uh, number. In very rare cases, it'll be one visit. Those tend to be what I believe are the most entertaining reviews that, I, that I'm privileged to write because typically that'll only be in a restaurant that is so horrible, so astronomically ridiculous that one visit is all it takes to know the, the, the truth. Okay, so that's what you're basing on. What about budget? Does it? Do you have one? No. Uh, I've never had to worry about uh, a ah, budget. That's nice. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 keep, I, I do keep my meals. I am conscious that I'm working for, you know, it isn't my money. It's, it's the company's money. And um, I rarely order, uh, never order expensive wine. Um, we, you know, we all know that there may be a seven hundred dollar uh, uh, Barolo or or, uh, or, or uh, uh, Chardonnay or uh, uh, Chateau Petrus on the menu, um, but I never order those. Typically, the wine I order, which is the cost of liquor, is a major driver of, of the cost of any meal. Um, I rarely order wine costing more than a hundred dollars. Oh, um, nice of you. <laughs> and, I, and I do, have, and I don't think I have ever ordered white Albert truffles in season or, uh, you know, very expensive caviar. Okay, so how how many how many times are you dining out a week? Are you doing lunches and dinners? Usually, more, mainly dinners, but some in some cases, uh, certainly some cases, uh, lunch. Uh, but more commonly, uh, uh, dinners. Uh, one of the interesting things about the New York dining scene is how many of the most popular and important downtown restaurants, defined as anything below 14th Street, don't serve lunch. Um, some do, but uh, the num- Nobu has never served lunch, for example. Um, the downtown one, I think, does. Nobu? I thought not. Yeah. You, may, you may be right. Um yeah, I think they do, but I've found that that when I go to make plans for lunch with people and I'm always trying to find a new place I haven't been, I, I get stuck a lot in trying to find a, a lot of the new restaurants don't, they I don't, don't know, Scarpetta, they just don't. Scarpetta has never been open for lunch, um, and I could, if I thought about it, I could probably reel off 20 names. Yeah, uh, I bet you could. So, so, so normally, <laughs> so my reviews will usually be based on on evening visits, although possibly with one right. lunch thrown in. And how do you decide where you're going to go? Are you tracking the new places? Uh, do other critics play any influence in where you're going to go? Yeah, I mean everything plays an influence. Uh, all restaurant reviewers typically focus on what's new, and which of course raises the question in every for every uh, critic. How new is too new? You know, can you can you reasonably write about a new restaurant after three weeks, a month, uh, six six months? And restaurant reviews are completely unlike any other form of criticism because the product is never the same. You, you know, movies always the same, yeah. etc. Uh, Broadway shows, plays are mostly the same, allowing for minor variations in in performances evening to evening, but. Uh, every restaurant meal is a different product and a different experience. And I always tell my friends that when you go to a restaurant, you're not really buying a meal. You're buying a memory. And the trick is to figure out when is the time that it's safe to sort of try to 
express that memory for readers in a way that may be useful to them. But restaurants, the whole, as we know, everything changes so rapidly. Uh, the movement of chefs and owners in front of the house, people were so mercurial uh, 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 that a place can be completely different night to night, more so than was true in the, in the past. Yeah, that that's true, and I love that buying a memory. It's <laughs> a good good saying. I bought some pretty expensive ones. <laughs> I bet. No, but I've found that over the years, I think restaurant reviewers used to wait six months, let's say, to review, and now it's more like six well, days. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and it seems that way. When I was in London with my wife about a month and a half ago, and uh, I had been to uh, a new restaurant had just opened called Sea Containers. Uh, which is in a building called Sea Containers, where the chef is uh, Seamus Mullen, who is a famous New York chef, the original chef of Bulgaria, and uh, whose work I, I've always loved. Anyway, this is an, an American restaurant, not a Spanish restaurant. And I was there the third night that they were open. And, of course, I was not planning to write about it. Um, but I was amazed. One of the British papers had an actual review with stars by their critic, um, on the basis of the, a single meal that she had the second night. I think it was the critic for the, uh, for the Evening Standard. So in America, in New York, everybody complains that, oh, we're, you know, we're driven to review restaurants too early because of the competitive pressures. We, we don't want to be seen to be getting to the restaurant late or last. The blogs have different kinds of, you know, reviews, quote-unquote, of varying degrees of credibility instantaneously, um, which puts more pressure on everyone to review restaurants too soon. And I've regretted places that I wrote about too soon, uh, but I suspect any other critic in New York who is honest would acknowledge the same, having done the same. I like that column you wrote about a week or two ago calling out mistakes <laughs> or, you know, or, or however you, you, well, you phrased it you. nicely. Well, I, I, I use that as your a, regrets. I wrote about some of the places that I had clearly blown in terms of what I wrote about them. Although some of the ones I mentioned, were the quotes, quoting myself, those quotes weren't from reviews, but from columns I had written about the place, not actual reviews, uh, such as one about Del Posto and, and Morimoto when they first opened. Um, but I also used that column sort of as a way of calling out other critics for what I regard as their, you know, colossal misperceptions of restaurants. <laughs> okay, we'll leave that at that for now. We're going to take a little break here. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry. I'm here at the Radio Network. White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. Welcome back. 
This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Steve Cuso, restaurant reviewer of the New York Post. So, Steve, what um, what trends today do you like or dislike that you see happening? Well, you know, it, it's the world of restaurants and dining is so ridiculously different from the one that I stepped into when I first began writing in 1998 that, you know, it's almost hard to believe it's the same business in the same field. The welcome parts of, of what's happened, of course, is that it's such a wide open dining scene. In general, the food is so much better than it was 15 years ago the, the, mm-hmm. in terms of, avail- you know, not only the obvious things like, uh, you know, the fresh products, etc., but um, it's, it, it, good food is so widespread, at least, and, and relatively affordable. And if you're in New York, this is true in uh, uh, all over the city. There, there was a time back in the, not that long ago, when dining was, as we know it, really meant Midtown, a handful of restaurants on the Upper East Side, um, and a few, uh, you know, sort of downtown uh, uh, uh classics like the old coach house and places like that. Dining, dining, entire districts that we now regard as dining destinations didn't exist as dining destinations or as anything, uh, they, including but not limited to the, the Lower East Side, the East Village, the Meatpacking District, Flatiron, um, and uh, increasingly Harlem. True. It, it definitely has, has grown. I've, I moved to New York in 1998, so I've only known... You as the restaurant reviewer at the Post, I feel it's it's nice if come come this way with you. Um, what I mean, what do you as far as your job? What are the your favorite parts and your least favorite parts of being a restaurant reviewer? My my favorite parts are the rare occasion or infrequent occasion when I get to write about a restaurant that I love. Uh, there is no better feeling than being able to share with readers the delight that one has taken. In, in a new restaurant. And so in the last couple of years, that would include places like uh, 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 Bethany on West 57th Street, which is a three-star restaurant, not only in, in my book, but I think every other reviewer working. Uh, Morea, True. same thing. Um, the, uh, 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 the second most fun part of the job is writing about the restaurants that are so horrible and ridiculous that you can have fun with them, which is maybe unfair to the people who work for them, uh, but nonetheless, certain things can't be avoided. And um, and the least, my least favorite part of the job is simply, you know, the, and I'm sure any critic would tell you this: the mechanics of it are more difficult than than someone who's not in the business might imagine. The mechanics of getting the reservations. Um, getting the people to go with you, you know, your collection of mouths who are part of your dining parties. On I'll a come with basis. you if you want. You got a deal. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't expect don't expect a wonderful meal. Nest it for a long time, um, and and uh, uh, and then you know the due diligence that any uh, 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 legitimate critic does is extremely time consuming. Yeah, you know what you ate, but you don't. And so there's a lot of back and forth with the restaurant's representatives or with the chef about what was really in that dish and where is the where is the you know where is the mirin from and all that kind of thing. And unless you do that, you can't really be taken seriously. But it's very time consuming, 
and it's sort of painstaking work. Got it. This is something I've been thinking about, and I wanted to ask you. With There's now so many people online writing about restaurants, reviewing. Do you think there should be a sort of prerequisite for a, a reviewer? Because <laughs> I, I, my personal take is going to culinary school or even having worked in a restaurant, having that experience would be beneficial to someone who's reviewing. Well, uh, good question, but having had having possessed none of those prerequisites <laughs> myself when I began writing about restaurants, I sure sure as heck can't uh, demand it of, any, of anyone else. And um, uh, mo- I, I believe that most people who write about restaurants take the craft very seriously. And the best reviewers and food writers, not only critics, um, are people who take the work very seriously but don't take themselves too seriously uh, in terms of thinking that, you know, my word on this is, is, is final and that sort of thing. Um, the universe and the world has changed because of, uh, because of the Internet and because of celebrity chefdom and all these other phenomena. Uh, and, um, and although lots of times I'll read something and cringe because I think it's absurd, and so will chefs and waiters and, 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 and restaurant owners cringe over what somebody has written, especially in the online uh, venues. Um, not only is there no way to change it, but uh, I think it's the price we pay for having an open, uh, you know, an open dining society, as you will. Right. Okay. <laughs> Let me ask you my questions I had from my last show when I had on Kathleen Squires and Beth Federici. They're the co-producers of America's First Foodie, which is a new documentary film on the incredible life of James Beard. Great people. Great people, great questions. So the first one, Kathleen wanted to know, she noted um, that an under-the-radar restaurant called Clement at the Peninsula Hotel that you wrote about and credits you for discovering the chef Brandon Keita and that it was a a, a secret restaurant didn't didn't get as much press in in her eyes. So she wanted to know what what other restaurant secrets out are out there. Uh, some pleasant surprises you've had this year. Um, you know, it's funny. The Clement case is interesting. If I could talk about that for a minute, uh, if I quote unquote discovered it, and, and the chef Brandon Keita, who had been in some other good restaurants previously, no one else has really discovered it. It's the only case. I gave them three stars and. You know, it's a stodgy kind of feeling place inside the Peninsula Hotel. And it's the only time that I know that I've ever written a review like that, three stars, where other reviewers have not pounced on the place, either to see that it's, you know, to agree and say, wow, this is a great place, or to rip it to shreds, as uh, uh, we sometimes like to do that to one another. And so I don't know, so if I discovered it, uh, that's fine, but I wish others would discover it too. Mind you, I haven't been back there in six months, and I have no idea whether it's lived up to the, the you know the review that I wrote. Um, as far as other undiscovered um, secrets, not really. And you know, there might be if if I had more time to go to more restaurants than I do. But in general, maybe a disappointing answer. But pretty much what what I've written pretty much, exp- to this point, pretty much expresses where I've been and, and what I liked. Um, I have no super secret um, finds, and I wish I could say that I did. Remember, I'm the only critic who does, I'm doing three different jobs, and I'm not, 
I have a lot of energy and I have a lot of stamina, but um, I can't be everywhere, everywhere at once, and I do cover other subjects for the post. And so I'm not in a restaurant quite as often as some of my uh, esteemed uh, uh, competitors. Got it. And I haven't been to Clement yet, so I'll have to check that out. <laughs> Let me know. <laughs> I will. I'll give you an update. Okay, the second question from Beth is, are there any restaurants that are no longer open that you wish you had, had gone to? Wow, are there. And I can <laughs> tell you, the, I miss terribly the fact that um, I missed all the great or theoretically great French restaurants of the long ago in New York. And because of that, you know, I, I lived on the island when I was younger, uh, had no money, and so I never got to any of the fabled French temples of haute cuisine, uh, and so I'll never know whether they were remotely as good as their reputations, the old Le Pavillon and Colony and, and, and uh, uh, Quo Vadis, et cetera. And um, the only one that I did get to was um, Lutece, but Lutes, that was in its sad, dying days, long after Andre Soltner had sold it, and it was in other hands. Um, so I missed terribly all of those. In more recent times, and I'll, I'll just never know if they were any good, uh, never mind what people wrote 50 years ago. And uh, in more recent times, not really, because I think I really, you know, if there's a place that's, that seems to matter, I make it my business to get there, whether or not I write about it. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. For me, La Caravelle is on my list of places. I don't know well, that I actually, never got to. But thank you. Thank you for mentioning Caravelle because um, uh, that was a great restaurant, and I miss it terribly. Although I, but it's not that I never got there. I, I ate there frequently. And, it was, uh, and for a brief time, the chef at La Caravelle um, was uh, Tadashi Ono, uh -huh. and who uh, went on to mostly Japanese kinds of restaurants like Matsuri. He's a fine, fine chef. And when he was at Le Caravelle, this classic French restaurant had a distinctly Asian uh, flavor. And it was all too brief, but it was a great, great time. And I, I, I'm sorry for people who missed it. Yeah, like me. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> you asked. <laughs> I know, I know. But I, I, I know the lovely Rita Jamais, so that makes up for oh, it. Rita's little. wonderful. Yes. And I, I, every time I see her, I tell her and Andre how much I miss uh, 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 Le Caravelle. Right. Terrific. Okay, we're going to take another break here and come back. We're going to do my speed round game and talk some industry news. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. It is so exciting to have this new medium. Posting after the jump has been a huge part of me transitioning from being a blogger to somebody who has sort of real important conversations with people in real life. My show, I, I kind of describe it as an audio trade magazine. I learn a ton from the guests every week, whether it's, it's restaurants, bars. All the hosts at Heritage all come from different perspectives. Everyone should be listening to this. If you're interested in conservation and and practical approach to renewable food sources, you know, not this big industry. Whether it's history, uh, laws, social policies of food, 
I think people now take food seriously, and hopefully what's on their plate will become something very special. And I feel that podcasting has a future, giving people information in a format they can really use on the go. We need your support to keep these conversations going. To donate, visit heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate. We're back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest is Steve Cuso of the New York Post. It is time for my speed round game. Steve, I'm going to name two things, and you just pick your preference. Are you ready? Uh-oh. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat uh, I Eat out. <laughs> That w- that w- was an easy one for yeah. you. All right. How about uh, wine, beer, or cocktail? Yes. Terrific. Although I, I would say this. I mean, generally I drink wine, and I, I-, I love all kinds of, or most kinds of liquor. I'll give you um, a yes on that. Okay. I, I, there's no right or wrong in my game, which is what's beautiful about it. Mm. Tasting menu or a la carte? Generally a la carte. Small plates or large plates? Neither. Just serve them in the proper order. Appetizers, entrees, maybe side dishes, desserts. Please. Okay. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? It would be much better if America switched to an all-inclusive charge the way it's done in not all of Europe, but most of Europe and much, but not all of the rest of the world. Um, I hate the institution of tipping, and it should be eradicated. Of course... Everyone who works in a restaurant should be properly compensated for their labor. And I think that it isn't the audience that stands in the way of this. I think it's the owners, no matter what they say. There you go. How about communal table or chef's counter? Um, communal tables are fine. I eat at them all the time. I, there's nothing wrong with a chef's counter, but I deplore the institution of the chef's counter uh, which is, uh, uh, you know, the case in about six or seven New York City restaurants, all of which belong to uh, a, a super class of ultra-expensive restaurants. I feel that as great as the food may be, and it is usually very great, uh, the counter is more of an altar to the chef's ego, and I believe that eating is not the same as dining, and dining, which is an enterprise that involves uh, sociability, conducting business, uh, conducting love affairs, people watching, um, the million reasons that you go to a restaurant for cannot be done at a counter facing the chef and having millions of little things brought to you in, in, in a succession. I'm loving these explanations. Okay, a few more. You're going to go off on this one. <laughs> <laughs> Bathroom paper towels or hand blowers? Paper towels. And the, um, it's okay if they have a hand blower. That's fine. But here's the problem with hand blowers. Restaurants install them and do away with um, the paper dispensers on baloney environmental grounds. First of all, the damned uh, you know, hot air blowers probably suck up more electric current than the, than the hand towel things you know, suck up trees. And there's a number of problems with them. Uh, they take forever. They don't usually work. Very often, the heat coming out of them is not hot at all but cold. And they're good even if they work at their, at their optimal best. They're only good for washing your hands. There are many occasions in restaurants when a customer needs to wash his or her face, for example, which cannot be done using a hand blower. 
And I, I just hate the institution of the hand blowers generally, and I hate the fact that in most many New York restaurants, even very expensive ones, the cold all you get is cold water out of the taps. You can stand there and stand there and stand there until you're blue in the face, and you don't get hot water, and I hate that. Have I made myself clear? Yes, a little bit of a rant. I love it. Okay. Um, restaurants or real estate? Right down the middle. As far as I'm concerned, they're really in, uh, they're, they're different sides of the same business to an extent. But if you were to ask me which would I give up for the other, I couldn't. It would be a Sophie's okay. Choice. Okay. Two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Um, I'm type 2 diabetic, and five years ago when I was diagnosed, and I was in a very serious condition at the time, I gave up all sweet desserts for about six months, ate nothing but, but cheese plates, and I love cheese desperately. And the, uh, now I tend to order more ordinary desserts. But the thing is that uh, desserts in New York, sweet desserts, are very unreliable, and cheese, although it can be overpriced, is almost always very reliable. Got it. Manhattan or Brooklyn? Last one. Apples and oranges. <laughs> I mean, obviously, the dining scene in Manhattan is vastly larger mm-hmm. and more sophisticated uh, uh, than Brooklyn's. But it's a wonderful thing to be here in, you know, the back room at Roberta's um, in a part of Brooklyn where Bushwick, where restaurants as we know them didn't exist seven or eight years ago. Great. Okay, that was a speed round game. It went speed round ish. <laughs> okay, yes. interest ish industry news. <laughs> this I wanted to bring up because I, I I find it very interesting. Grub Street wrote an article when a chef leaves who owns the restaurant signature dish. It was by Sierra Tishgard, and I could debate either side. You know, they were talking about Justin Smiley, uh, who was at El Buco Elementary, who's now at Upland, and one of his signature dishes is these short ribs. And so the question is, is it the chefs or is it the restaurants? <laughs> Good question. Look, I don't know that there's any case law on this as there is for, you know, trademark and copyright issues. Um, I, I don't know the answer. But look, I mean, you have a chef like, like uh, Nobu who created, uh, you know, the famous miso black cot at Nobu. That, now, he, of course, is still one of the owners of Nobu and, and at least nominally the, the head chef. Um, five million restaurants around the world um, now serve his black cod, uh, miso black cod. What difference does it make that it was created somewhere else and somebody copies it? I mean, Cronuts, you know, they trademarked or copyrighted, you know, the name, uh, and so now everybody does an imitation, you know, donut croissant, whatever they want to call them. But that's a separate issue. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think that there's a there are there's a rule of thumb or a rule of law about uh, who owns that dish. Chefs have been accusing each other of ripping off one another's, you know, dishes and recipes going back probably to the ancient Roman times, and I don't think that's going to change now. Yeah. All right, I'm going to leave it at, at that. Let's talk about another article. An Eater, they're introducing Nick Kokonis's ticketing system called Talk. It was by Aaron DeJesus. De- uh and this you mentioned in my speed round about about 
the all-inclusive charge. And this, I mean, this is a ticketing system that Nick has been using at Alinea and Next in Chicago. And he's now, it's going to launch in 2015 uh, for other restaurants. And he has Thomas Keller on board. He has Let Us Entertain You. uh, And it's about purchasing, pre-purchasing tickets. And it's an all-inclusive and um, he's going up against Open Table, which has been around 16 years. And, I mean, he's smart. And I, I think it's, I mean, it's for fine dining, I totally see it working. You know, I don't know for casual dining. I, I don't know. I mean, but in terms of, you know, digitally driven, electronically driven uh, change, um, you know, the, 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 you know the, the, the bull has been out of the barn for a long time on that. And there's no holding it back. On the surface... Uh, you know, I see nothing wrong with it. Um, I haven't experienced it, so I don't know how it works in practice, but I, I can't really argue with it. I remember when Broadway, many years ago, began selling tickets through, uh, 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 you know, Ticketron. Forget about online ordering. Um, there was a great uproar about how this was going to destroy Broadway. Um, go figure. Go figure. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, I... Have I talked about this solo dining experience I did where I got this reservation through Open Table at the French Laundry recently, and I flew across the country to go because it's so hard to get a reservation. And mm-hmm. I just randomly was looking on Open Table, mm-hmm. and one came up, and I took it. And I think for a place like that, it would it would work to to have these pre-sales in a I, sense. I, I think that if the pre-selling of tickets, in that sense, were to do nothing other than were to accomplish nothing other than eliminating the, the you know the, the the scourge of no shows. It would be a great thing for for the restaurant industry, and it would be good for customers as well. Because you talk to anybody who owns a restaurant that does high volume, and they'll tell you what an absolute horror it is dealing with no shows, especially on busy nights. It warps their operation. It uh, uh, um, uh, talk to someone like uh, Ed Schoenfeld, who owns uh, mm-hmm. the two Red Farms. Yeah, or decoy it. downtown about the damage that no shows can do. Um, that's why they they don't take reservations quite in the formal sense. They have a sort of a stage system where you call early and then you call later to confirm. Um, it, it's a it's a nightmare. And then customers very often will unfairly blame a restaurant for chaos at the front. You know, at the at the check in podium. Yeah, that's true. Okay, we're going to take one more break here and come back. I'm going to do my solo dining experience. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience of the week. Now, this week I checked out La Chon Brasserie. 
Here's the rundown. The location, 62nd and Collins Avenue at the Hilton Cabana in Miami Beach. The concept, a new French brasserie from the Pub Belly Boys. They also own Pub Belly, Pub Belly Sushi, Pub Belly Steak, and Barceloneta. And those are all in South Beach on Sunset Harbor. So this was up on, on Miami Beach, as I said, on 62nd and Collins. The partners and chef, Andreas Schreiner, Sergio Navarro, and Jose Menden. The executive chef is Josh Elliott. Why did I go? Because I'm a Pub Belly fan, and I, che- I wanted to check out their latest concept, which opened in June 2014. My experience? I went on this past Sunday evening during my family visit to Miami for Thanksgiving. I sat at a nice table for two, and my server took good care of me. The manager, Sophia, who introduced herself to me after I tweeted a photo of my dish, was a pleasure to talk to. We bonded over our mutual history living in Chicago and working in restaurants. What did I get? Dates avec l'archon, which were stuffed with bacon, conchilla, pork jus, and arugula, and cochon de lat, which is suckling pig with mustard glaze and root vegetables, plus the house bread. My take? Porktastic. <laughs> Tates were a tasty combination, and the cochon was rich and flavorful. The scene. It's a 150-seat hotel restaurant with valet-only parking. The large room was about three times the size of a normal pub belly gastropub. It was it had an open kitchen, wood tables and chairs, and comfortable banquettes. It wasn't that busy that evening, so the noise level was low, and there's also a, sm- a small bar up front. I'd say it's perfect for dinner with family or friends. Interesting tidbit, the name Lachon with an apostrophe is a play on the Spanish word Lachon, which means pork. Personal fun fact... I met Jose Menden a few years ago at Pub Belly through my high school friend, Abing, who is the owner of Sushi Maki. The cost, $47, including tax and Miami Beach's standard 18% service charge. Would I go back? Absolutely. I'm still a Pub Belly fan. The website is pubbellyboys.com backslash Lachon. So. That was a lot of fun facts. Thank you. <laughs> I guess it was a big fun fact. Um, I'll make sure I drop in next time I'm, I'm in South Beach or Miami. 62nd Street is north of South Beach. Well, yeah, it's Miami Beach. I mean, it's, it's past the fountain. It's Blue. Miami Beach, yeah. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. Miami Beach. Yeah. Also, when I was down there, I went to the Forge, which is up there, and Christopher Lee is now the chef there. So mm-hmm. there's more happening north. Mm-hmm. And Michelle Bernstein, too, just opened a place, Sea Grape, in the Thompson Hotel. I remember when she was at the Azul in the, um, was it the Mandarin, I think, in, in downtown uh-huh. Miami? It was a great restaurant. Yeah, it I don't. I never dine there, but I'm a I'm a Michelle fan too. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're at the end of the show, so it's time for the final question. So, Steve, I wanted to ask to see if you can ask a question for my guest next week. I'm having on Karen Goodlad. She is the assistant professor at the hospitality management department at New York City College of Technology, so City Tech. Do you have a question for her? Um, the. Uh, What's happening in, in terms of education of uh, uh, presumably uh, students with a culinary uh, interest in the modern techniques, you know, everything from sous vide to uh, molecular, um, uh, molecular styles of, of, of cooking? Uh, is this uh, something that uh, people who are young and new to the, uh, the kitchen scene are eager to uh, invest themselves in and learn all the techniques, or are they... Or, or are they just interested in, you know, getting a job and getting on TV? 
<laughs> well, <laughs> I'm not going to answer that, but a little, yeah, that's a good question. Thank you. I will ask her and find out. And when you said molecular gastronomy, I have to mention this. When I was in San Sebastian last year and there was a tweet and you saw I was there and you told me to go to Ecolari. Ecolari, yes. So I went. Witch's brew, I think it means, yeah. Yeah, so I was like, what's another 200 euro? You know, just <laughs> just go for it. And it was molecular gastronomy. It was a very cool experience. Did you have, uh, do you remember having, mind you, I was there about nine years ago, the forest floor? Or how about gin and tonic on the plate? No, but They I, invented that there. Oh, did gin they? Gin and tonic on the plate, yeah. No, but I had this lobster that was distilled in a, a siphon, like, on my table. It was very interesting. I'd never I had lobster I, cooked on my table before. I wish I'd been there for it. <laughs> well, I was thinking of you, so thank you for the recommendation. And thank you for coming on my show today. Sherry, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, this has been great. So I've been talking to Steve Cuso, restaurant critic, real estate columnist, and op-ed contributor at the New York Post. He's on Twitter at Steve Cuso and at NY Post. My Twitter is at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry, at Heritage underscore Radio. If you miss live broadcasts, you can always find us archived at heritageradionetwork.org. We're on Stitcher and iTunes. Thanks to my engineer, Jack, and to Steve, I'm Sherry Bayer. I hope you enjoyed this episode of All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'll be back next Wednesday at 4 o'clock for another live show. Hope you'll tune in then. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>